Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Fast Company is over. Mm. Mm. You need a quadravane blower installed. <laughs> All right, teens, queens, guys, and blue jeans, this is it. The world of the drag racer. Fast cars and fast company. Why didn't you call me a You're finished. And we're going to run that car, and you ain't going to stop us. Don't go away, fans, because there's lots more coming right at you. I'm going to to keep a lover like you on the road for so long. All right. Well, I've said everything I need to say, Andy. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, everybody. Yeah, that was it. This was, uh, this was a surprise Cronenberg film. Was it a surprise to you? Well, no. And I guess, I mean, it would have been if I hadn't already learned about how this one was so different. So I guess to that end, it was spoiled. <laughs> so I, I, I went so in going, I, oh, this is going to be the one that feels really different. Yeah. It 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 felt it felt different. <laughs> I have, you know, I feel like emotionally I'd worked myself up to being um to being ready for some Cronenberg horror and to go through the body horror journey and all of that. And then he gives us Fast Company, which is a movie uh about 
the uh, uh, drag racing uh, sort of, I, I would guess, sort of pro, pro-am drag racing funny car circuit. And it is not, uh, it's out of character. And Cronenberg has some interesting things to say about this movie and how it fits into overall uh, his overall catalog and contribution, uh, which I, I look forward to talking about. To me, this movie probably was made worse because we're talking about it in this series. And I struggled with it because I kept expecting around every corner to have the underarm uh, rectal proboscis. Uh, and like, I, I just expected to be shocked around every corner that didn't last that long. Uh, but, but it was a surprise that this film was as slow moving as it was. And I think it's, it's an interesting love story that he gets to tell to this thing that obviously he cares very much about. It's tough to make an exciting movie about this. Well, I don't know if I'd agree with you there. I mean, I thought it was fine. I actually enjoyed it for what it was. It's a genre film. It's a car racing movie. It fits. It fits in kind of that B genre that you would expect this type of film to exist in. Does it feel like a Cronenberg film? No. Like if if I went and watched this straight up before I uh, really knew, or if you took all the credits off, if you stripped everything off, like I feel like some of Cronenberg's other films, you can really tell, okay, this is the guy who's going to be doing that again. This film, like, because I, I, and I went into this watching, is there anything in this that actually feels like Cronenberg, other than his clear passion for car racing and that world that he himself has kind of lived in before, uh, before he kind of went into making films? Is there something that has an element of Cronenberg, even if it's just the way that he kind of was putting his shots together? And I don't I don't think I actually felt much of anything Cronenberg in this. And uh, I guess that's the first question that I would put to you is when a filmmaker who has such a particular body of work makes a film like this. And, and you know, I should you know preface this by saying David Cronenberg has said it's not so much an anomaly in his in his oeuvre of work, but it's one of his many children. Just like children can be different, this one is still his and represents facets of him. Does it say something to you about a director's body of work when something like this stands out as so completely different from everything else? It's not like a filmmaker who's directing all sorts of different genres. This is like a filmmaker who has a very specific genre and style, and then there's this one. Right, right. And I think that's, you know, I, I don't think we would ever be in a position to say, you know, to, to make any sort of statements on his sort of uh, that, that don't say anything to counter his uh, own statements on this. This is it's fine for, no, for him I to see this as his children. But I you're I, I think that the things that are interesting to me to answer that question um, are the stylistic bits, the way he compresses time through editing, the way he handles action sequences that happen very, very quickly, that I think you can get away with a lot more in a horror picture than you can in a film like this. Because in a horror film, we have a skewed sense of time anyway, right? We have an internalized understanding that when the uh, victim is running through a field and someone is chasing the victim and they're only walking, it's okay that the, they're going to catch up because time works differently in a horror movie. It's okay. Like, we can let a lot go. I had some enormous trouble in this movie the way 
uh, uh, action sequences were handled, the way explosions were handled, the final sort of climactic race uh, were very Cronenbergian cuts. Like it felt like he was moving through time in a way that in this movie, where in this world, where I have a much better sense of how time works, uh, it doesn't work. It violates rules that I've already internalized and can't let go of. And so it makes the ending wholly unbelievable to me and uh, sucks a lot of the the energy out of it. Um, so that that's one area where I think this does feel like Cronenberg. And it, as a result of what I know of Cronenberg, uh, it doesn't work as effectively. That's interesting. I, I guess for me, I, I didn't have any particular sense of kind of that storytelling style that he used in the climax there that made it not work because it was it was in a different genre because again i think i found i connected this more to kind of just this a genre picture of car racing movies whereas i think you kind of placed it more in like kind of a real world setting which i mean to a certain extent it is but uh, you know i just i just kind of gravitated more to just kind of that gritty b genre car movie um and so i didn't have any issues with that sort of thing and to that end uh, I think maybe I found that it worked better largely just because I think he just he went from one genre to another genre and was OK changing conventions. And he acknowledged like right out of the gate with this film, I'm doing this in a totally different genre. Look, listen, I've got a pop song playing and we're just cutting to beauty shots of of cars and trucks driving and all this sort of stuff. It felt so much like him saying this is a different genre that I haven't worked in before, but it's a fun genre and I'm just going to throw everything at it the way that I've seen it done in this genre and I'm not worrying about it so much. And I, I felt like I, I felt like him relaxed a little more in a way where he was just saying, yeah, I'm going to play in a different sandbox with these different toys, but I still, you know, I still know how to kind of roughly tell a story and get that through. And so he, he did, but I, I guess to me, it didn't feel anything like I, I didn't just didn't spot anything that just said this is definitely Cronenberg other than the way that he, I, I think, really loves to show the details of the kind of the the I guess I would say the technology in the other yeah. films. It's the technology as horror and kind of how things are happening in this particular case, it's technology in the form of these cars. Like he gets some really incredible shots of, I mean, he gets shots of engines and things working and stuff like that, but he gets like these great camera mount shots of these cars at a point in time where I don't think a lot of that was being done. And to me, that kind of work did feel very Cronenberg. Uh, well, and I, I agree with you there. And I would even say to the point of, you know, the engines and stuff, the the way he shoots engines, the way he shoots us taking parts off and putting parts back in and and, uh, you know, the way we live in this world of the of the sort of pro am part, right, of of racing, where we see the contrast between the giant tractor trailer that is sponsored by Fast Company, the the oil company and, you know, the second, third, fourth tier to the to the all straight amateur drag racing, you know, uh, that we get to see, you know, what whatever you brought to the track, you can race it, come sign up, <laughs> right? That that kind of feel. Um, I thought that was exhilarating. There is a, a sequence at the end where we get all the drag racers. It's this montage of happy drag racing, you know, that just goes 
on and on and on. But as the sun goes down, it really changes the way the you know flames coming out of the tailpipes. I mean, it's just it, there's some really interesting stuff there, and that I I agree with you um, is effectively Cronenberg to to me. the The challenge I have about this as a car as a racing movie is that to me much of the exhilaration of the best racing movies that you know that I I really love are about a kind of racing that gives you more racing in the racing right in this movie the racing is over in 6 seconds right <laughs> to the point where they actually have to superimpose a timer in one of the interior car shots which i actually really liked i think that was that was effective in terms of giving us a sense of place and time where from the green light, we had the clock start kind of overlaid on top of the interior kind of driver's POV, and it's over in six seconds. And it is an incredibly fast and sort of exhilarating way to say, hey, you're in a, a dragster right now, and it's going to be great. But I think mechanically, because these races are so short, I never got a sense of the emotional drama of the race. Right. I never got a sense of the the narrative arc of a race itself of two like the mano a mano on the track, uh, really going at it. Turn one, turn two, turn 500. Uh, I, I never got any of that out of this movie. And, and so in that regard, I think it's the wrong kind of racing to have to, to film and, and to to treat cinematically um, for me. I just didn't I didn't connect with it. So you're not a fan of bull riding movies either, then? <laughs> I'm largely not a fan. There's, of a, there's the, a whole uh, movie called Six Seconds. That's all. Yeah, about no, the I know. Bull ride. That's right. Uh, That's right. I um I I I I can definitely see your point. I don't think I end up agreeing with you just because, and I and I agree. Like the longer car races, like the actual like uh, sports cars, like when you have those races that last lap after lap after lap after lap after lap. There's say, there, say what you will about Days of Thunder, like that is no, I mean, the, like yeah. those are race. That's a race car movie. There's you know? definitely something about that. Now these are totally different kinds of cars. You know these dragsters and these funny cars. It's a totally different type of race. That's a little different class almost. And I, I personally, I, I think you. I think it is literally a different class. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I actually ended up kind of really liking it and kind of connecting with this world that I had, don't think I've ever seen kind of depicted in film before. The fact that these cars are designed to race really well, but pretty much only for about like that six second window of time, I find really interesting. And I don't know, I, I connected with these characters. I mean, it's not a great story. It's pretty standard stuff. And when I say I connect with these characters, I like it. It's all in kind of that B movie, you know, it 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 kind of passes by and by the time it's over, you know, I don't think that I have much connection to it really. But at the time when I'm watching it, I'm like, yeah, it's it's interesting. I like these characters. I like this world. But it's I mean, it's nothing it's nothing that is huge. And to that end, I think it really does end up falling to the characters and how much are we going to be able to connect with the characters in the story? Because that is going to be the thing that really makes a story like this work. And like you said, you brought up Days of Thunder. I would argue that we can connect with those characters better because they're as Hollywood as that story may be. 
we may be able to connect with those characters a little more than perhaps we do in this particular film. I think that's accurate. I, too, I did some searching. I, you know, I'm certainly not an exhaustive search, but I'll tell you, it's hard to find racing movies that focus on this class of racing in my limited experience here. I've got Drag Strip Girl, 1957. Um, I've got uh, 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 Funny Car Summer, 1974. Uh, but mostly when you're on the track, you get a chance to go around the track. And yeah. you, you get a chance to build a connection with the competition. And in this movie, for me, this movie was void of that competition. I want to ask you, related to that, about our supposed antagonist here. Uh, now, generally in these movies, the antagonist is set up as the guy that you're racing against. This movie is a little bit of a pivot on that. Gary, the guy we're racing against, is in the middle of a, a much more, I think, complex web of uh, intrigue and malfeasance and sabotage uh, than being the direct sort of mano a mano racing foil. And he ends up playing, I think, a really interesting role ultimately in the end. The real bad guy is Fast Company the, and the representative, the track representative, uh, I would say, right? Yeah, less the company, more specifically the representative, uh, mm -hmm. as depicted by John Saxon. Who is, I, I think he's generally a great uh, bad guy. I, you know, I think he's great, period. I just, I think John Saxon has been great in such a wide variety of movies, whether he is a more villainous character um, or he's kind of a more straightforward, you know, yeah. kind of just a character like in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. I think he's yeah, uh, just right, fantastic right. in those ones. But I think he's definitely one of those actors who has done a pretty good variety of of good and bad. And I I generally enjoy him in films that I see. And here, as the bad guy, I mean, I think that you could say he's definitely drinking it up and does a great job of of playing it. And you're right, he's not the other racer. But I think that that's an interesting element of the story, the way that that plays out, and who ends up being kind of the bad guys in the film. Because certainly John Saxon is one of the bad guys. Also, uh, Gary Black, you know, his he he's on, I guess you could say, the bad guy's team. He's the main guy. But then we also have Meatball and Stoner, and who are kind of his, you know, uh, I don't know what you call those guys, but just kind of the... Play his crew. The, his crew, right. And Meatball is the one who really ends up kind of becoming the minion of uh, Adamson, John Saxon's character, and the one who kind of uh, ends up kind of performing some more of the nefarious deeds in the film. Right. As as Saxon's character starts to sort of turn the table on uh, our our, you know, protagonist racing team, uh, lucky man, um, you know, we get an, uh, it's kind of an interesting twist that we we realize that the team is out to, you know, put this legendary racer out to pasture and replace him with somebody who's much more of a, a company man. And, you know, can we find that in Gary? And uh, the, you know, Saxon doesn't go directly really to Gary. Gary is, you know, what he starts out as kind of a sympathetic competitor and he becomes a foil. Um, you know, he's given ultimately the big truck. He's given the, um, you know, all the trappings of success while Saxon and, and the, you know, meatloaf are out there trying to, to turn the tables on these two teams. Meatball. And <laughs> meatloaf. Meatloaf. Meatloaf is... 
different personality. <laughs> all of the meats, man. Would you tell me, just stop for a minute. Would you have been surprised one bit if Meatloaf had shown up in this movie? I, I beg to say, you surprised. would not have been surprised. No, I, would. I would love to see Meatloaf playing Meatball. That actually, <laughs> that would have been great. <laughs> uh, yeah, so. I don't even remember what I was talking about. Yeah, well, no, it's a, it's an interesting world that is set up here the fact that that gary is kind of that guy and i it's there are elements that i really do enjoy about this and i and i i haven't been able to kind of put my finger on this if it feels really cronenbergian because i know that he was one of a few writers on this particular project which is the first time that he's kind of been in that situation where he's kind of helping write a script that other people have come up with um in this particular case it's still kind of this corporate entity that ends up being the the antagonist of the story. And to that end, is that kind of a Cronenbergian element where it's kind of this bigger, this bigger uh, entity that is kind of um, bad? I, I don't yeah, know I, if I could say that it is completely Cronenbergian, but I feel like it's something that he's played with a little bit. Well, couldn't you make the same case that the big company is represented by the Starliner and what they've come up with in as this kind of megalopolis of of self-contained living in Shivers? Couldn't you say the same thing about the self-contained uh, giant sort of company backed uh, hospital? conglomerate in in the last movie i mean i, I think I you could make that case that I, well that's you know. what i was thinking that we could but i don't feel like the doctor who's coming up with the plan and shivers is any way related to the actual company that is uh, behind starliner um in shivers likewise i don't think it's really this huge you know medical uh megalopolis that is running uh the the colloidal institute whatever it is in uh in um the in the second one rabbit rabbit yeah, yeah. so i i, I, but well, I, feel and, like and I don't think we can though, be too yeah. liberal or too literal about that because i i do think that there is a there's a sort of culture that he's commenting on here yeah. and in in this movie kind of big company big oil is the starliner of this movie right i mean it's it it's the it's the thing that is is so big and so powerful that it demands you change your behavior to suit it and in this case it might be you know as you know superficial as uh changing teams around the racetrack and changing logos on a car or it could be the weirdly gratuitous uh motor oil covered naked body sex scene uh that uh you know that where they actually are using the company's product as a as a literal lubricant <laughs> <laughs> right and and i think that's a i think that's an interesting uh, an interesting statement right in terms of that that cronenberg is a, a really uniquely positioned to make largely because of the kinds of movies he'd made before this one yeah and to that end, I think there is an element that does speak to kind of his type of storytelling. Yeah. Another element that I think is interesting in kind of coming up with this story is the the all the writers in Cronenberg really went into this wanting to make a Western in the car world. And so kind of you've got the whole, you know, the black hat and the white hat, like in the old Westerns. Here it's a black team and a white team. Um, Billy the Kid is a character here. Uh, it's it's an interesting idea to kind of give this sense of this this westerns and kind of the the clear cut black and white nature of a story in this thing. Um, 
but does it come through for you? And is that something you even thought about? I don't know if it if I thought about it at all until I heard Cronenberg talking about it. And in the end, yeah. does it does it end up mattering? Well, I don't know. I mean, I I end up looking at this and and thinking, okay, what are the westerns that he might have been watching? Right? Are we talking about the the No Name trilogy? Right? No, are we I, talking? I would think that what it's more just about? the straight up um, good guy, bad guy. You know, the black hat, the white hat, just kind of the mm-hmm. clean cut early John Wayne sorts of Westerns before he was doing things like the searchers. Okay. All right. I, uh, I guess, uh, I, it did not come, uh, across that well, uh, that clearly for me, not until after the movie. And I started trying to place, you know, uh, place those labels on this movie. It was for me, it was a race car genre picture. And and that's about as far as I got. I mean, have you been able to make more sense of it? No, I mean, I, I get it. I, I see that they did it after I read about it. It's like, okay, sure, Billy the Kid. Mm-hmm. That's an obvious name and a nod. He's wearing a cowboy hat. You've got kind of these these good guys, the bad guys, the you know the 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 bad sheriff and stuff like that. I, I see these elements there. I You're think finished it, in this town. Yeah, I think it's interesting to kind of use that as a model when they're putting the story forward, but largely in the end. Um, it is just a, a genre picture like a Western film is. And to that end, I think it didn't bring a whole lot of new ideas to it because it's just it's, it really ends up just being another genre picture. Right. I mean, it didn't scream to me Western slap me in the face Western like, you know, serenity. Right. A Western, literally a Western in space. Uh, it didn't didn't feel like it was going it was leaning that heavily into it. But we do get a steal the horse sequence. Uh, which is in this movie where they have to, they have a car, they just have to go find it and they go find it and they break the horse out of the barn sequence. <laughs> and, you know, uh, what the, as I watched it, it was cheeky and I, I was not a fan, but as we talk about it, maybe, uh, maybe it was cheeky in all the right ways. Yeah. For me, it works. I mean, again, it's all part of the genre picture and that speaks to kind of, again, this nature of, a genre picture where I feel like they could have put more into the writing to really kind of boost it up a little bit because the ending really starts feeling like stuff is happening that just doesn't make sense anymore. But I'm like, you know, but in the world of the genre that they're playing in, it fits. Okay, I'll give it to them. And so I end up kind of shrugging my shoulders and and, and blowing it off because I'm like, okay, so they steal the car back. In reality, I like I completely don't buy it because if he has gone and stolen the car, I can't imagine that he would be able to race in a stolen vehicle. I feel like that's a perfect time for Fast Company to sweep in and say, hey, this is stolen. You're not only not racing in this, but you're under arrest. You know, I mean, there's there's things yeah, like that that don't make any sense. The bandit, yeah, I'm you like, know, I, like, yeah, it's just illogical at that point. It is. It, it goes and and for me, I was already pretty bored, and then it became illogical, and that makes it not an an enjoyable way to wrap up this movie. How did they not see meatloaf at the far end of the track <laughs> or meatball, pouring, whoever it is, or meatball? <laughs> I did it again. Uh. What are you going to do? How did they not see uh, Meat Lover's pizza down at the far end putting the flammable material on the track? How did was he able to cut off Billy in that in the other car and Billy able to stop so quickly 
after the car immediately in front of him explodes. Like there's nothing logical about that sequence in time and space. And um, and so it, it just, it completely falls apart. It goes from grounded genre picture to completely unrealistic nonsense. Yeah, and I would argue that because of the nature of the genre that it's in, it ends up being... You know, I shrug my shoulders and go, okay, it it fits with what they're doing in the genre. But see, but see, Andy, I, that's where we we definitely disagree on that point because the the genre, like like we're gonna call it what what are we calling it as a a genre picture, right? I mean, well, it's this, not a fantasy; it's a grounded race car not, movie it, with human physics. Yes, yes, but. It also came out in this period in the 70s and 80s that was this whole car exploitation thing of exploitation car movies that were just like these these crazy car you know race movies and all sorts of crazy nonsense happening and you know I I think things happen in these movies that are beyond belief to a certain extent and and I I feel like you're putting a lot of emphasis on the fact that just because we're in the real world of car racing that everything that's going to happen in it all of a sudden needs to be realistic and I just I feel like it came out in this period of time where you're not getting that out of other car racing movies that are coming out like I think it would have been an anomaly if it did act more naturally in the period of the 70s when all these other car exploitation movies were coming out you're absolutely right, and I will give you all of that if you introduce some more car exploitation in Acts 1 and 2 of this movie. Like, they set up a movie that was more grounded than the other crazy bonkers car movies. Like, he introduced wackadoo car stuff in the last 10 minutes of the movie, and by then, it's too late. By then, it's not, he hasn't given me the movie. Like, he's changing up the rules of the movie that he gave me, and that, I think, is the sin of this movie. <laughs> Okay. I think you're you're being a little hard on the genre <laughs> period. But hey, it's you know, to each his own genre of what? Wackadoo it, car exploitation movies? Yeah. I, I, this is not one of those movies. It totally this is. This is a movie that's gonna be a grounded car movie at racing movie, and it's gonna show <laughs> me these relationships between men and women, and it's gonna show me this big company stuff. And then in the last few minutes, it's gonna show me nonsense physics. Like, fine, if you're going to give me that kind of movie, but like you, you got to set those rules up earlier. I, I totally get where you're coming from. I can see those points. I guess I, I just, can make the points again, Andy, if you need me to. I am sure you can. I could, I'm sure <laughs> we could fill the rest of this show with you making the points and me not worrying about them. But that's fine. It's I I don't have an issue because for me, I I just see what's happening. And you know, what? it's. In like so many movies where you get to the climax and something happens that hasn't happened before because it's the climax of the movie. And of course, they're going to change things up in order to actually make a climax. So you're experiencing something different and bigger and beyond what you've seen in the rest of the film. So I end up having no problem with it because in context of just this world of these car movies, sure, another car raced ahead of the other car. I'm really not too worried about it because it's a, it's a B car racing movie. I'm very flummoxed by this uh, because I know you're you're you are intentionally not nitpicking at your normal standard. It's because it's, I think it's, it's, I feel a, like the way a, I do. It's an exploitation this B is, movie. Like why is, nitpick on a movie this like is this? Exploitation podcasting is what this is. And right here, two thumbs I can, looks like this I guy. I can nitpick 
my my <laughs> the rest of the show away. But it's like, what's the point? This is not the type of film you nitpick. This is the type of film that they made for a certain audience. The certain audience enjoyed it. And you know what? I can enjoy it and not worry about it. All right. It doesn't all mean right. that well, I'm going to all of a sudden call it a five-star film. Far be it from that I, I fully expect it to be a five-star <laughs> film with quibbles. Of course, it's a five-star film with quibbles. Uh, moving on. How do we even go on from there? Uh, That's a good question. <laughs> can we talk? Should we even start talking a little bit about some of your favorite cast performances? Sure, we can kind of run through a few of the a few key cast members. Who do you All want right. to start with? Should we? I, well, I feel like we need to start with Lonnie. Lonnie Johnson. That's what I was going to say. William Smith playing uh, Lucky Man, Lonnie Lucky Man Johnson. So he is, to, he's the stoic, right? He's the rock of of this, of the racing thing. He's the guy who survives all the nonsense explosions and lives to tell the tale. Got a stable relationship in Seattle. As far as we know, we don't see any other, you know, womanizing on his part. He's a good guy, right? Uh, yes, which is rare for him as an actor. He largely played bad guys. That was kind of uh, his bread and butter. He, I think, enjoyed that perhaps a little more than playing good guys. And it was a little bit of a change for him to kind of do a good guy role. And I thought he did a great job in kind of uh, the good guy role for this film. I, I kind of enjoyed his just the kind of the world of all of that. I thought he was fine. What do you think? I did. I know I, I did, too. I mean, I think for, for what the movie was, for this grounded uh, cinematic exploration of drag racing that obeys all the rules, I think he did great. Uh, and uh, I, I was interested in his in the texture of his character, kind of the way he played it. I could actually feel a subdued sort of Clint Eastwood in his performance. So that that, I guess, is an easy uh, way for me to make that connection back to, you know, the the um, Leone westerns it just felt gritty like that speaking of eastwood he was in any which way you can with these that's right that's right i don't feel like i've seen much of his other films um a lot of the stuff he's uh in are just not the movies that i'm generally seeking out to look at um but i did see he was conan's father in conan the barbarian just a few years later yeah he was also in the outsiders and rumblefish and red dawn red dawn yeah, yeah. and so uh Outside of that, I think probably 94 is the last time I watched something with him, and he was a bit part in Maverick. So I don't, uh, yeah. I have not seen much of him. I missed Manosaurus. <laughs> <laughs> Sad to say. Oh, me too. <laughs> oh, yes. He did. He won the 200-pound arm wrestling championship of the world multiple times, according to Wikipedia, and also won the U.S. Air Force weightlifting championship. He was a he was a big dude. He was stacked. You know, you can get that sense here. He's definitely yeah. big. Like when he's, I think when he's like kind of in his wife beater shirt and he's, uh, I think that's when he actually decks Adamson and knocks him out of his uh, trailer. Yeah. Um, Which is a fall. Uh, that, kudos definitely. to that stunt yeah. performer because that was that was a knock hitting that was, the pavement like that. That was a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So um, we've already talked a little bit about John Saxon. Do you have anything else to say about him? No, just I thought he was great yeah. here. Uh, Nicholas Campbell uh, is, uh, I guess, the next Billy. one we should talk about. Billy the Kid. Um, he kind of fits. I, I think he, again, a lot of these sorts of guys are guys who fit in. Yeah. 
this world. And for me, like he seemed like a young racer, kind of this little cockier, um, you know, just a little, um, you know, more sure of himself, but didn't necessarily have the experience. I kind of like that about him. I did too. I thought he was, uh, I, I thought he was fine. He reminded me, there's so much of this, uh, like these movies, or this movie, I should say, that took me back to uh, other, like more slapsticky comedies. In this case, he reminded me so much of Billy from Caddyshack. For some reason, I was. That's I, actually pretty I, interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I just felt like that was, that was this character, you know, uh, Ahoy, Paloy, you know, as he shows up in his. <laughs> fancy unified fire suit um there was that and then the heist sequence just re- reminded me so much of stealing the winnebago and stripes like there there is a vibe to these movies that we're in any other context put the right music to it and i could have that i could have seen been seeing those movies felt the most to me like a, a an element of this story that cronenberg really pulled from his time spent with ivan reitman on the last yeah. two films and stuff like that actually surprised me that ivan reitman was not on board this one as one of the producers because it felt so much like something that ivan reitman would use in so many of the movies that he was involved in yeah yeah homage um the the uh, we had uh, claudia jennings as sammy and uh, judy foster as candy I actually felt like in context of what sort of movie this is, there's at least an interesting element to both of these two characters. And I actually felt yeah. like they had more writing than I was kind of expecting. <laughs> I know? think the airplane sequence in particular, the, when she's in the, in the cabin with um, uh, Phil, yeah. and he's literally telling her, describing to her that he's about to, to you know, use her for her sexuality, and he then later prostitutes her out, and she, you know, she's she makes, uh, I think, you know, many of the right choices. Yeah, you know, she's it's, she's got some good. There's some some solid uh, writing for her in those sequences. Yeah, and just the fact that there was an actual relationship going on with uh, with Claudia's character and with uh with Lonnie like I liked that Sammy and Lonnie kind of had this long distance relationship and she was always looking for him to settle down I thought that was actually I do too and and there is a there is a sense of that sort of grace in complexity of human relationships and I I get that um and I think that complexity is at points here lost because you can't in on on one hand have a movie that shows sort of mature and strong relationships and clear lines, uh, you know, business, uh, clearly delineating business relationships and, you you know, turn around and also say, okay, we're going to, you know, exploit you so clearly in the movie and not have a problem with it. Like there's like the characters clearly don't have a problem with it. And so I I just felt like it's a little bit of a a two-faced. uh, as it's as we write around, we write very explicit scenes of strength, and then the scenes that the, the rest of the film just, in terms of those relationships, tend to be sort of flippant. Well, and to that end, well, a few things. It's the seventies. Not that I'm yeah. excusing it, but you know, it was more more obviously happening. Yeah, we can't change history. Yeah, right? that was then. Uh, Claudia was a uh, Playboy playmate, playmate, in my mm-hmm. understanding. And uh, so and and we know that it's something that uh, Cronenberg had used to his advantage in some of his other films, like the one we just talked about last week, The Rabbit. Um, That's right. But I do think in and also it's a genre picture. And I think 
maybe that's as you know unfortunate as it may be but in context of what the genre picture was a car racing movie is gonna kind of emphasize some of that sort of stuff especially the scene when billy the kid has the two women back into the trailer Uh, you know the most gratuitous nude uh moment that we have in in anything that cronenberg's done up to this point uh playmate of the month november 1969 and playmate of the year for 1970 Claudia Jennings. And this is a a really kind of a sad little story because Claudia had been in a number of films, largely exploitation types of films like The Unholy Rollers, Gator Bait, Death Sport, The Single Girls. Those are the ones that IMDb says she's most known for. This was her last film because, sadly, um, shortly after this film was released, she actually died in a car accident. So, yeah, pretty... uh, sad way to go after being in a film um right. about cars that was a real downer and it kind of soured my mood you know i i honestly i really liked the cast i thought they yeah. that they cast it really well i loved don franks as elder um and uh robert haley the as pj the two guys who were kind of on the crew for uh lonnie i really enjoyed um george buza and david graham as meatball and stoner the two guys who were on uh, uh gary black's crew and and cedric smith as gary black a little side note george buza who played meatball he was the voice of beast in the x-men animated series which i think is kind of funny and actually i think as an as a a, an homage they brought him in to to be the trucker in (laughs) x-men so uh it's kind of fun little bit of trivia but i you know i just i think that the characters were really interesting the one that i wish that they did more with was stoner because i felt that there was this real interesting character arc started with stoner where we have that interesting moment where you can see the the crews and the drivers they're kind of you know they're butting heads but they're all still kind of friendly as you tend to be in this sort of world and Stoner goes through the the effort of changing the tire on on Lonnie's truck only to or I think is more Billy's car actually only to um when Gary gets all pissy with Lonnie and says take it off they can call their guy and get it back and I feel like okay Stoner is the guy who's he is not going to kind of go down that dark road Meatball is. And I was a little surprised that they didn't do something with Stoner's character arc because I felt like by the time Gary and Meatball were kind of wooed by Adamson to be kind of the new face of Fast Company, I really was expecting Stoner to kind of be that character who says, I'm not doing it. I'm going to work with the other guys. And it just it right. felt like they were setting that up and then it never went anywhere. Missed opportunity. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I felt like the transition for Meatball was strange. I felt like it was too easy for uh, Phil to infiltrate the uh, uh, blacksmith's team. I, it just felt too heavy handed, too easy. But yeah, it it's but, you know, Meatball was always set up as kind of the yeah. the bad guy. And so. To that end, it's like it feels like it's easy because it's a genre picture and they didn't put effort into the elements of the script where you could have had a more 
complex, well-rounded character. It just, they wrote a straight up genre character. And so I'm like, well, okay. it, they did. It was easy. It, it, they took the easy way out, but they also yeah. set up Gary as being a much more complex character. And yes. uh, they, they didn't take advantage of the setup of that character. And they took the easy way out for him too. They didn't make it an interesting departure for uh, Meatball to turn on Gary. They took Gary from being a sophisticated and interesting driver and made him a simpleton by the end. Like when he's playing darts in the truck and he says, wait, what are you guys doing? Don't you worry about it, Gary. Like, don't worry your pretty little head about it. I found that ridiculous. Like, why did you spend all this time making me kind of care about the relationship between Gary and Lonnie and his building the team uh, when you're going to turn him into this to a simpleton by the end? Now, obviously, it's because he ends up making the ultimate sacrifice in the Fantasyland sequence at the end when he sacrifices his own life. And that, I think, is a strong moment for that character. But there's that middle area wandering narrative for me where I think they forgot who Gary was. Yeah, to a certain extent. I I, I agree and I disagree. I, I totally see that point. I think it's fair. I But I like that he makes that turn. I think it ended up working for me in a, in kind of that simpler way. Five stars with quibbles. <laughs> I will. I do have to point out Cedric Smith, who was uh, Gary Black, also was in X Men the animated series. He played Professor Charles Xavier, along with other characters such as Red Skull and Zebediah Kilgrave and Purple Man. <gasps> oh, Purple Man! <laughs> oh, he's one of my favorites. So there you awesome. go. There you go. Awesome. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, camera Mark Irwin behind the camera. Cronenberg talks about how this was where really where he ended up having a budget where he could actually have crew members who had been around the block a little bit, who had some experience, and he started getting a handle on, oh, this is what they're supposed to do. Mark Irwin, the DP, this is the first of six films that he will end up doing with Cronenberg. Ronald Sanders, the editor, the first of 16 films that he will end up doing with Cronenberg. The art director and production designer, Carol Spear, first of 14 films. Delphine White, the costume designer on this film, is the first of four films. Brian Day, the sound mixer, the first of eight films. And sound effects editor, Terry Burke, the first of six films. Cronenberg really kind of got this uh, idea that, hey, you know, now that I'm working with these people, I want to keep working with them. I want to collaborate with them because they are an artist. I am an artist. Let's make art together. And I think that's actually really important. Even the actors. I mean, Nicholas Campbell as Billy the Kid. He's going to be back in the very next film, The Brood, along with a couple other films, The Dead Zone and Naked Lunch. So it's really kind of a this is where Cronenberg really starts finding that family that is going to kind of work with him over the course of his career. And, you know, I have to say, like, you can feel that in the general world building of this film. I think the like it feels uh, very much in the world. I feel like I am a, a part of this. I feel like I'm in the truck. I feel like I'm on the racetrack. They capture what it feels like to be hot. Uh, they, you know, it, it looks great. It's, uh, I think the, you know, apart from the craziness of the editing at the end, I feel, I felt like it was largely cut together. Well, I think they, uh, you know, we've already talked about some of the truly interesting and innovative camera work that they do in this film to to uh, to to celebrate the track and the world and the cars inside and out. Uh, so I, I think there is a lot to appreciate about the film, ultimately, even if, you know, it ends up being, for me at least, 
not so much the sum of its parts. I have to say one of my favorite shots. In fact, I would argue uh, possibly my favorite shot of the entire film because I feel like it captured so perfectly just the world of this I'm going to go out and say lower end racing. You know, the tracks are not that great. Mm-hmm. It, everything's a little run down. The shot that just made this film for me and said, this is a filmmaker who's doing a little bit more than what a B-movie really needs to be. It's a shot from inside a car and you're looking through the windshield at kind of the just the track and everything going on outside of it and hanging down directly in front of the uh, the lens in on the windshield you have three pairs of legs that just kind of you can say okay these are people who are sitting on their car just out there watching this stuff go and here is this cool shot inside the car and you just see these feet it was a perfect shot kind of depicting this world for me i that uh, why is it that i can't get that single shot out of my head either like that when i think about this movie that's the first shot that comes to mind it it was i felt like i was in that car it it's exactly right. Yeah. It was great. I feel like that should be the Facebook banner for this show's week. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, let's uh let's see. Did we miss anything in our notes that we were uh really, really need to talk about? Or do we need to jump in quickly to the extensive sequels and remakes of this <laughs> right. film? Technically, this would be the final one of a number of remakes. Except none of them are. I just found it really funny <laughs> that when I was researching this, this is the sixth film that is called Fast Company. And I was like, that's kind of odd. And I looked at some of the synopses of the other ones, and none of them really relate. They're all kind of different. It's just titled Fast Company. The first one, 1918, then 1924, 1929, 1938. I don't know why there was such a a bunch of them in those 20-year period. Then 1953, all the way up to this one in 1979. What a weird thing. I mean, I guess it's, it's kind of one of those titles. It's like, not that specific. It can kind of reference kind of anything. And here it is. I just, I need to get your commentary for, um, for on the music and the choice of music, because there is part of me, I think, wow, he is really like, he's, he's making a statement about the world that they're in. And I think he's also, you know, there's something that is a, a bit of satire in there, having a film, a song that keeps coming back over and over again, that uses the name of the movie in the lyrics of the song. Uh, and that's a button. Um, I found it, wildly overused and uh i i it did not spark joy uh did you find yourself touched by the way they used the the song i didn't have any issues with it and there were actually like three songs i think it was three that i counted in the credits but it's funny because it is that sort of song where i feel like okay i thought it was one song i didn't realize that i had heard three (laughs) songs over the course of the film uh but sure enough there were more than one um you know it it fits. It's that. It, and I think, you know, he starts it off, like I said earlier, with one of these songs. And that says, this is this genre. We're going to play pop songs in this movie. And it's going to feel like the sort of film you're going to get when you're going to watch a car racing movie at the theater. I felt like that, that this movie, that would have been a perfect opening to like a car racing version of Cabin in the Woods. 
you know, like we're going to make this kind of movie. And in just a second, something super surprising is going to happen and it's going to be gross and it's going to take you in a totally new direction. And that, I think, is the challenge that I ended up with this movie. It never really took me in a new direction. So yeah. uh, did you do anything in award season? Was this a big, big in the dragster uh, filmmaking award circuit? You know, if there were more drag racing award uh, shows for films, um, it might have. But unfortunately, it was just one of those movies that I don't think, uh, well, it, it we didn't really talk about it, but it struggled with its release, uh, definitely here in the States, a little bit in Canada. But the the distribution company that actually had the rights to the film actually went into bankruptcy before the film could be released. And this film was held as collateral in in <laughs> court. And so no it was way. unable to actually get its U.S. release. And uh, it did have a release in Canada, but uh, it, was, uh, it really kind of stunk for the filmmakers um, because it just wasn't able to, it didn't turn into something where they could get their money back because of the situation that it fell into. So I wow. think uh, because of all that and everything else, and because it's just a car racing genre picture, I don't think it was something that was going to get anything. So yeah, it's bupkis as far as awards go. How to do uh, at the box office. Even with such a tonal shift, Cronenberg did still end up increasing his budget, working with a million dollars this time, uh, which is about three and a half million in today's dollars. Fast Company was released March 18th, 1979, opposite California Dreaming and the China Syndrome, when it did finally have its limited release. Unfortunately, like Rabid last week, I couldn't find any information detailing how much the movie actually earned back. So that's largely what I got. But like I said, with the distribution company falling into bankruptcy, you know, it's it just it wasn't able to get much of a distribution. And so I don't think it made much. Um, it's one of those I doubt there was any sign of a return on the investment, but who's to know? Well, you know what that means, Andy. It's ripe for a remake. <laughs> I, uh, I think so. Easy pickings, people. I think it's time we uh, rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see the, all of the movies that we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and you tap flickchart, it should take you straight to this movie where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, Fast Company or one of our many Robin Hoods. It is Robin Hood 2010, Ridley Scott's version. Robin Hood 2010, please. I will say Robin Hood as well. Fast Company or another Robin Hood movie, Robin and Marion. Robin and Marion. Yeah, I'll say Robin huh. and Marion. Okay. Fast Company or Bull Durham. Definitely Bull Durham. <laughs> Bull Durham. <laughs> you love it. You love it. You know you do. <laughs> Fast Company or everyone's favorite Indiana Jones adventure, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. <laughs> um, would I watch Indy before I slept to this? Yeah, I probably would. I'd watch Indy. I'm going to say Fast Company because... In context of what they're doing, I think they do a better job than what they did with Indiana Jones. Oh, man. All right, I'm going to give it to you. All right, Fast Company takes it. And the other movie explodes. <laughs> Fast Company or Christmas in Connecticut. Christmas oh, in a Connecticut. sweet little movie. I'll say Christmas yeah. in Connecticut. Fast Company or Battle for the Planet of the Apes. This is the last of the I'll, apes films. Uh, I, will, I will battle. I will battle with the apes. I, yeah. In, it's a rough one, but I would pick it first. And maybe it's just because I love the franchise more. Yeah, yeah. Fast Company or 
<laughs> Everyone's complete. This is such a complete opposite to a car racing movie. Wendy and Lucy. <laughs> Where's my lost dog? I will take uh, Fast Company, please. I'll take Wendy and Lucy. Really? I'm surprised, yeah, that you will take Fast Company. That's weird. <laughs> you know, where it is on the chart right now, I am, uh, I'm willing to go to the mat on this. All right, let's, let's do it. Let's just see what happens. Let's just right. see. All right, here we go. One, One two, two, three. three scissors. Scissors. Wendy right. and Lucy takes I, it. You know, I have no feelings. <laughs> I have no feelings. I am numb to this choice. Fast Company or everyone's favorite disease thriller, Outbreak. Wow. I will take Outbreak, another genre movie that I think, yeah. you know, it's not my favorite, but I will too. it's doing an entertaining job with it. I will too. That helicopter thing, though, man, <laughs> that's rough. There are a lot of rough things in that film. All right. Well, Fast Company landed in spot 395 on our chart, 395 out of 421. That puts it at about a 6%, which is pretty low. How did it do on yours? A lot better, actually. It landed at 2948 out of 4213, which is actually about a 30%. How do you think it did on mine? I would say it's going to fare about as well as it did on our uh, group <laughs> chart. <laughs> It is. It landed at uh, 1352 out of 1410. That puts it at about a 4%. Uh, and once again, it's one of those where, according to the algorithm, I should be giving this no stars at letterbox.com slash the next reel. Um, but, you know, I feel like I've, there are, this movie is worse than the sum of its parts. And it's not a great film. And. It was pretty boring through some of it and crazy at the end. And I'm still, I still think I'll even give it a star. Wow. I'll give okay. it a star. One star and I'm guessing no heart. Nah, I don't need to come back to this one. Okay. I liked it more than you did, as was clear from our conversation. It's not a five-star film, but it's it's a genre picture. And I think it's doing well for what it is. And so to that end, I'm giving it three stars and a heart. I'd watch it Three again. Stars. It's, it's an easy film to watch and an easy film to enjoy. There are, there are a lot of movies that you have still to watch. So <laughs> I feel like functionally, practically, you and I have just made the same choice. I don't, I think you, you would, but you won't ever have the opportunity. Uh, no, but I, if, if it pops up, I'm not going to say no. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I think you will go eat crackers. You will just go, you'll say, hey. You know what's better than, than this movie? Some saltines. Well, saltines are pretty good. Well, where, so we finished this one. Where do we go from here? We are going to be um, jumping to Cronenberg's very next film, which came out the same year, I think largely because of the distribution delay the Fast Company ended up having. We're going to be looking at The Brood, also from 1979. It will be an interesting uh, return to the body horror that we have already experienced with Cronenberg. This one has Oliver Reed, Samantha Egger, Art Hindle, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be seeing uh, uh, Nicholas Campbell again popping up here. Is this another one that you are familiar with? I have seen this one, and I actually have started my rewatch of it. So I'm excellent. Uh, it's a very interesting one. I'm looking forward to discussing this one with you next week. Very weird to say, Andy, but I. Huh. I am looking forward to getting back into a little Cronenberg horror. <laughs> All right, everybody. When the movie ends, the conversation begins. Mm -hmm.
Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Mm, Amazon didn't relate today. Nah. You know, they, meh, meh. Nah, not in not in the lower regions. Certainly not, not in, in the, the nether lower regions. regions. <laughs> not in the nethers. <laughs> uh, I I've got uh, I've got a five star. I think we went high because uh, yes. the the nethers were the nethers were barren. And uh, so I ended up with King of Things, who gave it a five star. Says it's an odd movie, but there is little in the drag racing genre for us. Fun to watch because of the vintage film and the driver's perspective on a run in a funny car. But if you're looking for Oscar performances, forget that, though. You do get to see Claudia Jennings before she lost her life later that year. Oh, it's a real up and down. It's a roller coaster, much like this movie isn't. Oh, you're so mean. You have one? I have one from Heather. Heather Florida, I guess, is her name or her moniker. She says five stars and says gift. Got this as a gift for my dad. It worked and he enjoyed it, I think. (laughs) That's a real twist. Five stars. Five stars. He said quibbles. I don't think she knows how to give ratings. No, she doesn't know what stars do. <laughs> hmm. There's a great movie somewhere that's short, five stars because of her review. Thanks, Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season nine, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. Ooh, this should be fun. <laughs> we're starting with the big series, Robin Hood. <laughs> well, I mean, aren't they all based on some Robin Hood story in one way or another? Yes, but any idea which specifically? Uh, well, I'd say uh, Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, the silent one, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, that terrible 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood, they're all based on, I would say, probably the same standard tale. Robin and Marion, I would say, is probably based on a different take. Uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, too. Oh, God, I can't believe I forgot that one. Okay, how about Spike Lee? Uh, aren't they all original? No, n- not one we covered this season. It's a biopic. Oh, Black Klansman! can't believe I forgot that. We have covered so many great movies that all started as books. Books like The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Europa Europa, Spore, or Arsenic and Old Lace. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. 
I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. Thank you.